Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast on spiritual direction and spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. Thank you for listening. Learn more about our work and the work of spiritual direction and spiritual companionship on our website, sdicompanions.org. Bouchot Lan is a Zen student and teacher and the guiding teacher of Flying Cloud Zen Spiritual Practice Community. He's also a popular speaker, retreat leader, spiritual director, author, and a senior priest at Minnesota Zen Meditation Center. Bouchot has just published his first Zen book, Singing and Dancing Are the Voice of the Law, by Monkfish Publications. In this episode, we discuss this book and its exploration of the Zen poem, The Song of Zazen. And we discuss other things, such as how we first connected at SDI, persevering with ideas we feel called to create and offer, paradoxes such as giving up safety in order to find safety, the nature of the universe, you know, the things we commonly talk about here on this podcast. Bouchot is a friend and a lively conversationalist and deeply contemplative. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Bouchot, it's good to be with you. Hello. Hi, Matt. It's good to be with you, too. Yeah, I haven't seen you since uh, the May. Was it May? When was our conference in Santa Fe last year? It was May, right? Yes, that sounds right. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems like a lifetime ago. (laughs) It does. I mean, in my brain, I'm already ahead to the Madison conference, which is early May. And so that date is sort of burned into my brain right now. Right. Are you going to be there at our Madison conference? Um, I'm hoping to, yes. I'm hoping to. I'm not presenting uh, this time. Last time I did. Um, but this time I'm hoping just to attend and soak it up. Okay. Soak up all of the good conference, all the good conference goodness that we always experience when we're together. It's, it's always uh, nice to be with a group so that large. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you have been a presenter, a workshop presenter, and had to kind of be on... It is a very different experience to get to go and and just be present. Yeah. Yeah, I really feel you. So I hope that I hope you yeah. get to experience that. And so I guess what I want to ask you is how did you when did you first connect with the SDI community? What was your what was your first experience of this? Boy. That's a really good and very fair question. I'm I'm uh, going through the uh, calendar in my mind. I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm thinking is, um, at the uh, toward the end of my certification training, I did. Um, I think it was two or three years. I forget if it was a two or a three year uh, program here in the cities at a place called uh, Christos Center for Spiritual Formation. At the end of our um, kind of educational formation period, we started addressing really practical matters around kind of the nuts and bolts of spiritual direction. And they included connecting us to the larger community, resources in the larger community, not only for peer supervision and support, but also um, making ourselves available, right, to to potential companions, potential directees, uh, folks who, who may want to walk with us. And SDI, of course, is, is 
the preeminent and kind of premier resource, uh, of course, uh, globally for that. So my sense is I probably was uh, at least on paper connected to SDI back then. And that would have been, I'm going to say, 10, 10 or 15 years ago, something like that. And then um, in more of a, uh, I think I kind of dialed up the intensity um, closer to probably eight years ago when I was asked to present. Um, I wrote a couple things um, that were published and then I presented at um, uh, the conference in St. Paul. Uh, the, the It was um, Cultivating Compassion, if I remember right, was the theme. And it was here, I'm in, I'm in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And so it was, oh, I can just drive for 20 minutes and be there. And I led some morning meditations um, and offered some teachings on a bodhisattva uh, here at the at the St. Paul Convention. And then, of course, you know, the connections start being real. You start meeting people, you start seeing faces, you know, shaking hands and go, oh, that's who that is. And oh, that's I've heard of I've heard of their book or something like that. And, you know, you feel um, uh, more of an intimacy with the with the community. And so uh, I think that's when it really that's when it actually changed for me is when you can put a face, right, a face and a voice to the name. Yeah. And my engagement with the community. Yeah. Notched up for sure. Oh, beautiful. How did you we share a common friend in Diane Millis? And yes, we do. Did you connect with her through SDI or through your local geographic connection? Uh, It was local. we actually met through a place called uh, the Episcopal House of Prayer. It's here in the cities. Um, the home base for um, Episcopal House of Prayer is actually north of the cities by about an hour and a half. It's on a um, St. John's University campus. And um, we were I was helping to lead retreats. I was doing some teaching for the House of Prayer and leading some retreats for House of Prayer uh, with an Episcopalian uh, priest Ward Bauman at that time he was the director of that and Diane came to one of our retreats and we got to talking and then she came to another one of our retreats and we got to talking and uh, the director at that time Ward said you know I would like to include the two of you as one of the teaching presences some teaching voices was what he was wanting to cultivate um, at the house of prayer at that time and so Diane and I were asked to start creating some um, shorter retreats and some longer, like five-day retreats for the contemplative Christian uh, community. And it was brilliant. It was just, it was just brilliant. I, lo- I love teaching in a contemplative, even though I'm a, a, a Buddhist, I love teaching in a contemplative Christian setting. It takes me back to my Catholic roots and <laughs> yeah. gives me a chance to play with all the faces and names and stories that I grew up with uh and and to watch spirituality expressed in that way is really really nourishing for me so yeah yeah diane and i go back to that and then of course sdi now just becomes more connective tissue for the two of us yeah sure and then that's how you and i first connected because you and diane back in 2020 i think it was offered uh a re- an online retreat right during the uh, pandemic yeah and so that was where I got to I got to meet you through that and get to participate and help you put together that. It was a a very beautiful offering. I'm very proud of it. Just the teachings and the guidance that you and Diane offered, but I think the way that we created that container with the with the online platform and the Zoom calls and the recordings 
just felt like a very cohesive, very beautiful offering. I'm so yeah. glad to hear you say that. I am too. It was very unique for me. Diane and I actually still talk about it because it was, you know, kind of during the height of the pandemic. And so part of that format that we put our heads together, you know, the three of us and kind of created this idea that every day somebody would get a little drop, you know, they'd get a little five minute recording and an email in their inbox. And over the course of the month, um, the, the weekly zoom meetings, there was a sense of being sustained, I think for a longer period was one of the uniquenesses. And during a time when I think a lot of us felt really isolated and there was a lot of fear you know, for yeah. obvious reasons. So it was a very unique uh, structure for me too, but I agree. I, I'm very pleased with how that, how that turned out. And I think about, I think about that one a lot. I'd like to recreate, you know, some version of that again, because that really seemed to work. The people really responded to it. Yeah. I just am grateful, Boucheau, for your participation in the SDI community, all these ways. You know, we, I always want to stress to people that like, you know, we need your voice. Uh, you know, we have all these different ways of kind of being together, you know, workshops at conferences and, uh, you know, writing articles for the blog or for the newsletter or, you know, whatever. And um, like you have lived into that through, through your, through your writing, through your teachings, through your facilitation. And it's a, it is a, it is the model. You are the archetype of the SDI member that I, I want everybody to feel like they can live into, just fully participating, sharing your voice and and finding um, people who want to hear what, what you have to share because it, it resonates. Yeah. Well, thank you. If if yeah, and if it's it's a if it is of use to anyone out there, right, listening to this, uh do it. I agree with everything you just said. Offer your voice, put it out there. It does get easier. At first, it's kind of scary, you know, like, oh, do I dare submit something? Do I dare write the email or, you know, do I dare um, submit a presentation description and maybe I'll get turned down? Maybe it'll go well, maybe it won't. That makes sense that there's a certain amount of kind of trepidation, but it gets easier and it's lovely to know this is such a warm community, right? SDI has always felt like we all have so much in common. We've self-selected, right? To even yeah. be in it's such a unique organization that there's so many commonalities just by definition that we're all going to share. That for me, remembering that really helps reduce the anxiety. This is a really friendly, curious, engaged audience. So yeah, for all of you who are listening and who haven't, um, or, or on the fence about offering something, give it a try. Give it a try. I've never experienced even the stuff that didn't go, that didn't fly for whatever reason. I've never felt, um, you know, anxious or rejected or judged or anything. It's a very kind, not only the staff of SDL like yourself and, uh, and Seifu, Matt, but the community at large. They're so receptive. They're so they're so um, they're so willing to go along because they so want um, what we've all chosen for our lives, you know, to offer. The ability to companion, the ability to presence, we're so into that, uh, that it makes for a deeply sympathetic audience. <laughs> That's yeah. been my experience anyway. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I'm glad to hear you say it, but yeah, let's encourage others. It's it's uh, it's a, a good encouragement and a good reminder too that uh, it can maybe feel intimidating if you haven't 
done it yet. If you haven't put yourself out there, put your voice out there. And yes, an encouragement to just to just try, you know, just reach out and to continue to reach out. You know, we're busy. Yes. And, you know, we're we're trying to lift up voices, but we can't lift up everybody's voices all at the same time. And so that's a good reminder too, like spitball, <laughs> you know. For sure. Stick with it. Yeah. 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 It's a little like selling a house is what what my publisher told me at some point. He said, if the manuscript gets turned down, submit it again in a year. It's like selling a house. Maybe the market has changed and your your wonderful presentation idea just didn't work for the Madison conference, but it was exactly what the conference after that needed. So absolutely. yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's and you know for a conference is just because we're on this topic you know we get we get more applications to present than we can than we have slots for and it's if you have submitted stuff before and it hasn't been accepted like please don't don't be too dis i know that's discouraging i don't want to diminish that but it's not because it was bad you know or not valid it just was you know it's just the timing right so so keep keep trying yeah Amen. That is absolutely true. Yeah. And that's good spiritual practice too, right? We're we're all probably collectively good at being diligent and hanging in there. Yeah. <laughs> During those desert periods when there's just no water in sight and it's just rough and you just keep hanging in there. It's like, yeah, this is good practice for us, right? Yeah. We're, we're devoted practitioners, all of us. And it is tenacity is a big part of it. It is a big part of it. And I, you know, I'm it's one of those things that is it's easier to say than it is to do, I think. <laughs> I have oh, oh, for sure. I, I I think we can declare that a fact. Yeah. Like, oh, desert wilderness. Like that's you're in exactly the right place. But you know, I'm like, I don't want to go there. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so human, isn't it? Did you know that you can advertise on this podcast? It's true. SDI Advertising is open to anybody. For as little as $99, you can promote your spiritual direction practice, your new book, your upcoming course, or whatever you have to thousands of SDI podcast listeners. Your purchase of an ad also helps support this podcast and our advocacy work around spiritual direction and spiritual companionship. Learn more and purchase an ad today on our store, sdicompanions.org. Just go to the shop link and select advertising. I want to ask you about, you mentioned a book, and I actually think that that's, I, I love, sure. I think it's a good segue because as a member, maybe you have an idea for, for something to write about. I, I kind of think we all have a book in us. And I agree. Is this your first book that you have, have published? Uh, it is. It is. Um, I did a book of poetry some years ago, but I self-published that. So I'm calling this the first book because I have an outside publisher and this as a cohesive offering feels it's more book-ish. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, 100%. I am I, considering this to be my first book. Yeah. Okay. Well, congratulations on that. And thank um, you. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about about your book? Tell you can however you want. You can tell us about the journey of getting to this point or the topic. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so thank you for your congratulations. It um well, I'm a first timer, right? This is my first real book. And so already I've discovered that a lot of the uh kind of the stereotypes about a project like this are true. Like, oh, it takes way longer than you think. Oh, it's more difficult than you think. Oh, the progress is slower than you think. Oh, 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 all that kind of stuff. And yet, all that said, um, I like what you I like what you reminded us of. I know that's kind of a saying, we all have a book in us. And I I do believe that. I, I know not all of us will write it, but for those of us who um, are spiritual companions, right, uh, spiritual directors, and I'm assuming that's the majority of the audience here today, um, I know I'm not alone in thinking as I'm companioning somebody and as I'm hearing about the stuff that brings them to life, you know, where their suffering lies, where their salvations lie, where where the wells are in their desert that they go to. And as we get to know these people's stories uh, more intimately, I know I'm not alone in thinking, oh, that would be a book. Oh, there's a book right there. <laughs> there's this dear soul's story is is so human. It's so universal. And it's also so unique, you know, the way that they tell it and the way that they wrap language around their experiences of, of longing and their experiences of being found and their experiences of presence and their whole path. You just you think, oh, there's a story there. I wish everybody could. I wish everybody could hear. That would make a great book. Um, so yeah, I think all of us do. And so the genesis of this, uh, the, there's a bunch of different ways of talking about it, but the genesis of this for me was, um, I think two things coming together. The first was um, discovering kind of by accident um, a teaching poem, uh, a Zen teaching poem, uh, putting teachings in the form of a poem is relatively common in the Zen uh, tradition that I'm part of. Um, and so uh, there's lots of them out there, starting from, you know, thousands of years ago, all the way up to, you know, stuff being written today, organizing teachings and expressions of spiritual aspiration and poetry is, is part of the tradition. So I found one um, in a pile of papers at the in the basement of the Minnesota Zen Center, um, where I'm on staff. And it was one that I hadn't heard before. It was one that was from a different stream of our tradition. So it wouldn't have been something in any of our chant books or any of our kind of normal um, normal course of study. But I read it and thought, whoa, there's something going on here. I was just immediately interested. It was, it was confusing and uh, puzzling, uh, but also, well, you know, the way that sometimes we're like, totally confused by something, but really curious at the same time. Not off-putting curious, but like electrified curious, that kind of thing. So I made a copy of it and uh, brought it home with me and added it to my uh, practice. I added it to my morning chant, uh, chant list. It's pretty typical in Zen to, if you really want to get intimate with the scripture, uh, you add it to your chant. Spend a few minutes chanting every day, and it's kind of a way of getting it in your body, you know. So I spent uh, I spent a long time chanting this thing every day, and developing a relationship with this thing. Holy cow! <laughs> it kind of starts to come out of your pores after a while, you know, just the way songs do or uh, prayers do that we've that we've memorized and repeated, you know, many many times. So that was kind of the first thing, and then um, 
later I realized uh, no one's ever written about this thing. Like to my knowledge, no one's ever written a book, at least in English, about this beautiful teaching poem. Um, and so because I'm used to writing as part of my job as a Zen teacher, you know, we have to give talks with frequency. It's pretty typical to say, well, you've got to give a talk on that scripture. Nope, you've got to give a talk on that person's commentary on such and such. Well, you've got to give a talk on that koan. This is just what we're expected to do. The mechanism in me for writing and the mechanism in, in me of trying to kind of express myself through writing and language was already pretty, it's a pretty exercised muscle for me. That machinery is pretty well oiled. I started thinking, oh, maybe I could write down a few thoughts about this this poem and maybe offer them on a Sunday, you know, at the Zen center when there's, you know, 40 people in the room, that maybe that would be a, a fun thing to do. And you can kind of see it coming, right? Like, Oh, well, there's that. Oh, and there's also that. Oh, and there's also that. Jeez. I wonder if that's what he meant. Oh, and that kind of connects to this. And all of a sudden this, this internal relationship that I had developed with this piece over the years that I had been chanting, it started to <laughs> flood up in my mind and, and come out in my language. So, the writing of the book was not the challenging part. That was that felt like uh, I was in relationship with the with the author, and it was really really fun to just use his words as a jumping off point. Um, the challenge part of writing, of course, comes later with the editing and the <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But so that was a long answer to your question. But this, um, the reason I think it's lovely to talk about here at SDI is the longer, of course, I'm a spiritual director, right? I'm a spiritual companion, so I tend to think of things in spiritual terms, and I tend to think of things in relational terms and in terms of story and unpacking. I found in this uh, poem what I thought was a real, a kind of an, a, a progression of spiritual growth, kind of a almost stages of development that we go through as, as spiritual beings. Um, and therefore, in a sense, it helped me. Um, I don't want to really say a map because that's a little too specific, but it gave me kind of a sense of, oh, this is the work that I also am engaged with, with all the people that I companion. What he was offering this poem felt really, really relevant to what I spend a lot of time doing, which is which is spiritual direction and companionship. So part of what motivated my writing this was I thought, you know, most people are never going to discover this poem on their own or be exposed to it. But when we realize there's there's some real jewels here that would be of benefit, you know, to a larger audience, I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> Skillful or clumsy, I will try my best to offer them in case they can be of value. I have to ask you, what is the poem? <laughs> yes. What is the poem? What is the poem? The Who wrote it? What is the poem? Uh, the name of the poem is The Song of Zazen. The Song of Zazen. Zazen is a word in, uh, it's a Japanese word. It means sitting meditation. More particularly, it refers to the type of meditation we do in Zen, but generally speaking, the song of meditation is an apt translation of the title of this poem. So our our author, Hakuin, his name is Hakuin, he's a very famous Zen 
uh, teacher. Seifu knows that name very, very well. <laughs> he and I have talked about the character of Hakuin, and he's he's kind of a larger-than-life, almost mythological being um, in Zen history. But this this poem that he wrote, the Song of Seated Meditation, in my eyes, is is this big, kind of famously cranky character uh, sitting down and writing a love letter to the practice that set him free. It's how it's always felt to me. It's such the language of the poem is kind of overflowing in its affection and reverence and devotion. And it's not always a voice that we associate with Zen teachers and not always a voice that we associate with kind of famously cranky Zen teachers like Hakuin. But the poem is very warm. The language is actually quite simple. It's relatively, relatively easy to understand. Um, so yeah, the song of meditation. Beautiful. The song of Zazen. It's amazing. Yeah, isn't that cool? It's very cool. And uh, I just hear like just really profound insight like that comes from sitting. Yeah. What? Yeah, his 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 overarching theme, and this is one of the things I was so grateful, you know, Seifu and I had conversations about this <clears throat> as I was writing it, and I sent him uh, an early manuscript, a, 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 some draft, uh, an early draft, and he was kind enough to endorse this book upon its publication. You know, his name is his name is there in the endorsements. And one of the things we talked about is, of course, our our shared tradition of Zen puts a very strong emphasis on meditation. Right on contemplative practice, self inquiry, uh, inner awareness. That that practice is so essential to what we do. Um, that this piece is kind of one of its one of the great things about it is it emphasizes the contemplative path, the meditative path that I know a lot of our you know SDI members are familiar with. Right, self awareness, self reflection centering prayer, meditation, right? But one of the things that it's grounded in that I found, I think, reassuring, in a sense, was its um, beginning and ending and its insistence as kind of an overarching theme that meditation is one of the ways and one of the most direct ways that we discover the power of our faith in the kind of the unshakable fundamental goodness of life itself that it's just this kind of when you sit still you'll realize the teaching is true that there is only well he he uses the language buddha which is you know awakening love compassion wisdom but to be reminded of that again and to be given uh to be given the invitation again sit sit still and know this Know this for yourself to be true that creation is fundamentally good and you're a crucial part of the awakeness of that, that that's really your birthright. Um, I, I know I need to be reminded of that. And as a director or as a companion, the people that show up with their suffering and the people that show up with their questions and their longings, it feels to me that we all need universally to be reminded of that. Uh, not only of the truth of of our divinity, but also of a way of connecting to it. So I'm making it sound really lofty, but the truth is it's actually quite practical. 
I think that's one of the things that's inspired me most about it, the practical right. instruction. Does that make sense, Matt? Oh, yeah. Well, it does. Okay, yeah. Like what I know about Zen, which is also very, <laughs> can be very paradoxical, right? So what I hear you sharing is that in, in this space of sitting, contemplative practice, reflection, there's a, it's a safe space. Like what I'm Correct. hearing from you is that ultimately there is a deep safety. And now yes. I come to the paradox of it, which is in order, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you, in order to encounter that safety, you sort of have to let go of safety. So, and I'm, I'm thinking about your presence article, which you wrote recently in December, which is about curiosity and yeah. about experiencing wonder and awe that comes from that curious state and in order to do that we have to be vulnerable and in order to be yeah. vulnerable we have to open ourselves to uncertainty and that is not a safe space and so yeah i guess this is my roundabout way of asking this question does it does it make sense that in order to encounter that safety we have to accept a, a certain amount of uh what unsafety danger yeah. <laughs> uh, i love the way you're asking it i think it, i think it makes perfect sense it's actually i think a very skillful way of describing what um it does seem i like paradox there it almost i think it does seem paradoxical at first i think experientially especially after we've we've done this kind of work after a while we realize well it isn't actually paradoxical. It's actually deeply intuitive. But it takes a while to realize, oh, wait, I get it. I have to be vulnerable in order to discover how safe I am. Right? That sounds like kind of a silly sentence up here at the level of, you know, kind of brain ego functioning. But in the heart, it kind of goes, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, that actually makes sense. What I love about the way you've described it, Matt, is it feels a little bit like left foot, right foot left foot right foot when we're walking is i'll take a little bit of a brave step here to go toward something in me that's hard to approach right a, a grief or a storyline that has a lot of pain in it um flashes of anger whatever that would be and i discover oh i'm actually okay when i allow that to show up for a few breaths at a time. Oh, so I feel kind of safe. So when I'm sitting the next day, I'm feeling just a little bit safer based on my experience. And so I'm more able to go a little closer toward, which is the vulnerability, you know, that you're describing. Oh, and then I can hold it for a little longer. Maybe I can see another layer deeper, you know, than I did yesterday. Oh, which reinforces my safety, which reinforces my bravery and my curiosity and my vulnerability, which reinforces my bravery, which reinforces, which, so it does, it kind of feels a little bit for me anyway, like a right foot, left foot. Um, and that's so much about what kind of the song of Zaza in this poem is actually about is beginning to realize through our felt experience, not as just an idea, 
I'm safe because my priest told me that I'm safe or yeah. I'm safe because the, the scripture says that I'm safe, but to actually be able to realize, well, yeah, that is a difficult experience. That is a hard memory. That's an afflictive feeling, but I can be with it. And I know that because I've done it a whole bunch of times. I've done it a whole bunch of times and it's okay. It shows up and it changes. It shows me something and then it leaves. Right. I start to, I really do start to experience how abiding, how reliable, how unshakable my safety actually is. And what I love about that is when I feel connected to that, boy, am I brave. You know, I'm going to go way deeper, deeper, deeper into the cave if I know for sure I know how to leave and I'm connected to a rope that, right, will take me back there. I just know it. And so I'm braver to go. I'm braver to go. I'm braver to go. Yeah. But that but that relationship you're talking about at, at, at first very much feels kind of like a paradoxical. It's almost like what we were talking about with <laughs> encouraging our SDI friends to submit something that feels yeah. like a a moment of vulnerability and exposure and, oh, I could get rejected and I could experience a feeling that I don't want to have. And yet, right, as we, as we, just through experience, we go, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. So when it does arise, we're not quite so freaked out. Yeah. It's akin to like exercise or like building a, a muscle strength, you know? Yeah. We're wobbly at first, but over time, we get a little <laughs> bit stronger if we stick with it, you know, if we keep showing up to it. Yeah. It's hard. It's well, and what I love about, yes, and what I love about that metaphor, Matt, and also about the way you asked the question, Matt, is like, in order to get the muscle stronger, we know, oh, that's going to involve me feeling the burn. Oh, it's going to hurt and I'm going to sweat and it's going to be like, right, if I'm doing my jogging or my push-ups or my whatever it is, right? So there's there's an implied relationship between strength and being with discomfort. And you realize, oh, being strong doesn't mean discomfort goes away. It just means I'm a bigger container and it's going to take me longer to get to it. Right. And what I love about the way you asked that question around, you know, vulnerability and suffering versus safety is, and, and I know, again, because this is SDI, the people know this, people know this, but that our, our freedom, our, our spiritual uh, birthright, right. Our, our awakening, our enlightenment, our salvation, our, whatever word we want to plug in there, we know that that's not apart from our experience of being suffering humans, right? That it isn't the leaving of that or the disowning of that or the repression of that or the not feeling of that or, <laughs> right, the successful avoidance of that. We know, oh, no, no. It's just remembering that my, spirit, my spiritual inheritance is, is I'm, I'm an infinite container. I'm an infinite large container so of course when anger shows up or confusion or tragedy difficulty affliction all those things it's like oh i can find somewhere in my being an infinite willingness we call it compassion you know but an infinite willingness to be right with it right with that suffering and you think well there's liberation actually right not, yeah. not the freedom that comes from i've successfully avoided because we can kind of feel that's a little tense uh, it's good as long as it doesn't come back we're talking about a much more secure spiritual space of it's okay when it's here and it's okay when it's not. So yeah, the way you asked that I think is really skillful. Hmm. It does seem like a paradox that our joy comes from suffering, but boy, it's, it's, um, it's right down the, right down the uh, center lane of this, 
of this book that I've written and, uh, and on the poem that I am borrowing this teaching from. Well, I'm curious about that because it's a, you would call it a Zen book in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's in the title. Well, oh, yeah. The song is awesome, but it's, uh, yeah. but, and yet I, I hear from you and I, and I read from you and I actually learned this from Reverend Seifu too. It's Zen is hard to describe. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> oh, is that ever the truth? <laughs> it's not Buddhism, right? This is. It's you even say this in the article. Like Buddhism is like not even the right container for Zen, but it's like the best sort of approximation, or right. And so, I guess, I guess, my question is: is this? Uh, <laughs> How would you offer this song of Zazen to non-Zen practitioner? Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm glad you hear that that same kind of stuff from our friend Seifu. It is hard to describe. And you know what's funny is it seems like the more you learn about it, the worse it gets, like the harder it gets. Yeah. <laughs> it I just accidentally because of how my life happened happened to unfold i don't feel like i asked for any of this but i end up doing a lot of public speaking you know you got to give a talk on zen well and then you know i live in a uh, i'm blessed to live in a metro area the twin cities uh, minneapolis st paul a lot of diversity here racial diversity cultural diversity religious diversity and so there's a lot of curiosity about uh different religion here and that means i end up doing a lot of speaking at universities and at colleges and at, even at high schools and that kind of stuff about Buddhism. And so when you're standing in front of, you know, 100 people who are there to hear about Buddhism, that's a lot easier to talk about than to talk about Zen, which is Buddhism, but also kind of a reaction to Buddhism. So kind of not, mm -hmm. but it really is. But well, it's designed to go beyond Buddhism. So I don't know. And uh, I kind of think, you know what, I think I actually spoke about this stuff more skillfully about 15 years ago when I knew a lot less. Because <laughs> I had some certainty and now I'm like, oh, I don't think any, any there's any certainty. Um, what you're asking, though, is is lovely. And the book, the book that I've written is actually, that's actually its reason for being. Um, I love the Song of Zazen. I think this is a beautiful poem. I think it is a love letter to something that can set human beings free. And so I appreciate that voice. And I also appreciate it was written by a Buddhist. I mean, a Zen, you know, he's written by a Zen priest for a Zen priest audience hundreds of years ago. So I appreciate that. Part of my job then became, how do I translate just the handful of terms in here that would be a little clunky? For a non-Buddhist, like, what are you talking about? What does that word mean? I don't get that one. You're like, oh, in 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 the Zen tradition, that would mean this. Oh, okay. Um, because what I feel is at its center, just like at the center of Zen, as you say, is a way of seeing, a way of being, a practice that's universally applicable, right? That's one of the things we're seeing. And I know, again, uh, our listeners know this. Um so many folks are interested in um, Buddhist thought, uh, sometimes in particular Zen Buddhist thought. We know that um, Buddhist psychology is making its way into secular, has been for actually decades now, in, into secular settings with the, the mindfulness movement, the advent of the mindfulness movement and stuff like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy that are 
just adapted Buddhism, right? So there's a lot of interest in Buddhism by people who are non-Buddhists. They're realizing, hey, I could play around a little bit with Zen um, and not leave my uh, Presbyterian home or not leave my Catholic identity or not leave my Jewish, right? That, that, that they don't need to leave something in order to go to. And I think that's one of the big things about it. Uh, and so in that spirit, when I was writing about it, I really, I really very intentionally knew it's most likely that folks who have some sense of what Zen is are the most likely audience, because it's fair to say it's a Zen book. But I was also aware, and I very intentionally chose to write about this in such a way that you don't need to know anything about Zen or Buddhism, let alone the Song of Zazen or Hakuin, in order in order to read this book. I, I very intentionally, and I worked with my with my editors, who's your audience? People who are spiritually curious. That's who that's who the audience for this poem is. And so I wanted to honor that by writing the writing the book to the the widest possible audience yeah. in that sense. And the poem itself in a couple of different places very intentionally says, here's where the doctrine of a religion ends. The thing that we're talking about in this poem, this is where the edge of, this is where it stops being a particular doctrine for a particular faith and starts being all of it. And that place is deeply interesting to me as a spiritual practitioner. Does that make sense? The thing I just said? Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay, good. Especially what, Especially as you say like this is the thing i'm interested in right it's the yeah. thing that is beyond the appearance of zen or the appearance of whatever your practice is and i and i you know i'm struck by that because you know in your article you go to some links talking about how uninteresting it is to talk about some things <laughs> like oh you can be a catholic and zen like how does that work and you know you'll you get asked these questions when you're teaching but it's it's not about that it's not about the the traditions necessarily it's about where they take you when you practice them in earnest and yeah. it's that it's those jewels i tend to think of zen practitioners as like spiritual miners like you're willing to like get real dirty and dig real deep and discover these jewels there and you like bring them back out to the surface for the rest of us and like we can bask in their shiny beauty and, oh i love uh, that i well, love it <laughs> i think that's where that's i mean i'm drawn to zen not because i want to you know get the robes and and do the rigors of it but because of that what is what what you discover through the zen practice and it's the song what is zen it's like we'll go go sit there for a while that's it you know do that for 30 yeah. years and what do you discover that's Zen. Seifu says, like, yeah. we ground ourselves in groundlessness. And, and through that, we discover that sense of safety that you described. Like, that is Zen. And, yeah. the, like, there's, like, just such a beauty in that. Yeah, and talk about security. Security. Right? And I, and I don't, to be clear here, you're saying it brilliantly. I love the way you're saying it. To be clear here, I think that kind of spiritual security can be found in any tradition, walking any path. It's there. 
for sure. But what I love about the way you're describing it is the idea of going in before we go without, right? Realizing everybody knows external world's changing, changing, changing all the time, changing, changing. Okay. Yeah. I might love that. I might hate that. I might have all sorts of feelings. Oh, I know that that's, that's just this world. You know, no one needs to be convinced of that. <laughs> everybody knows, Oh, here we go. Another day I've got to go out there. It's swirling. The way you describe it though, I think is really artful because of my ability to be at home, my, the, the sense that presence is what's abiding the presence is what's abiding. There's a safety in that. And, and we all know the great masters in every tradition have found some sense of abiding safety in the midst of circumstances that were unsafe or tumultuous or changing or even violent. I'm thinking of the time of the Buddha or the time of Christ or the time of Rumi or the time of St. Teresa, you know, in the middle of diseases and wars and plagues and, and to be able to remember, to be able to remain in contact with that still center and go, oh, yeah, I'm a spiritual being. Having a human experience, the human experience is always going to be on fire with something. <laughs> That's what I watch on Netflix. It's part of the thing. It's part of the thing. Oh, okay, I get it. Oh, but to be remembered. Yeah, but my source, my source is infinite and endlessly reflective and unmoving and Wow. And we call that all the things that we call it. You know, we call that God and we call it presence and we call it Buddha nature and we call it samadhi and we call it the law. In this poem, you know, the, the reason the title was chosen, singing and dancing are the voice of the law. Mm. And law is capitalized law. You know, you think, well, what's that about singing and dancing? Well, in traditional Buddhism, you don't get to sing. There's no singing. <laughs> In Orthodox Buddhism, dancing, oh, heavens, no, 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 no. You don't get to dance. <laughs> in Orthodox Buddhism, there is no singing, there is no dancing. This is serious business because this is human suffering and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. To get still enough, long enough to go, oh, the whole thing is okay. The, the security that you're describing, Matt, is outside of time and space, it's infinite. It's never going anywhere. So there's that's kind of the affirmation that I hear in the fundamental goodness of everything like literally everything creation itself life itself everything is redeemed everything is okay and so when it takes the forms that it does of suffering in real in our real life experience um not only is there an invitation to not forget that we're spiritual beings but i think there's the strengthening strengthening muscles that we talked about you and i the ability to become more compassionate the ability to actually become larger vessels for the human experience and thereby heal, thereby heal it. And as, as directors, I mean, as companions, I kind of think, in a sense, I'm almost obligated. It's certainly a choice. But when I really realize, you know, my capacity to be with my own suffering is the same as my capacity to be with someone else's, right? I can't fool myself anymore into thinking, oh, I don't have any self-compassion, but I have a lot of compassion for someone else. Oh, come on. No, I don't. <laughs> They're the same thing. Compassion is compassion is compassion, right? When I really, really see that, I realize my job is to be present. My job really is to be as present as I possibly can to another human being who's longing and suffering and confused and unsure and all that. I owe it to them. I owe it to the world to bear witness. I want to keep my eyes open. So I better practice, you know, right here in the, in the cave of my own heart, getting 
better and better at getting braver, like you said, at moving toward the things that are hurting and confusing and hurt, right? So uh, a healed heart. This is the wounded healer kind of archetype that Henry Nouwen talked so skillfully about. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes... Train, it's almost like on-the-job training for spiritual directors. <laughs> you know, All the time. Going in, right? find yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right, Matt. It really is. We never yeah, arrive. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and I, oft I often think, too, that the container of spiritual direction actually nourishes us and helps us strengthen those muscles, those muscles of safety and compassion and enjoy a hundred percent of life a hundred percent isn't it almost universal you know you and i we know so many spiritual directors spiritual companions right at the conferences we get to meet and the people we engage with we we hear this over and over it's such a it's just a stereotype to talk to one of these people and have them go oh the, the directee gave me much more than i gave them i learned so much more from the person i was sitting with than they learned from me that sense of being nourished and replenished by the people that we are blessed to sit with. I 100% agree. I have learned a tremendous amount from the people that I have sat with. Absolutely. Yeah. That's just true. Isn't that beautiful? There's something natural about it. It's almost like tuning forks, you know, when two human hearts start to resonate. Oh, yeah. With one another. I think we There's see something. that. I read that this morning. I think it was a Mark Nepo. No. It was a Mark Nebo thing, but it was someone else's writing about like two, two cells from two different hearts. Like you put them in a Petri dish and like eventually they like find the same beat, like the same rhythm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so we're discovering this more and more that relationship is in our DNA and it's in it's like not just our like physical DNA, but like in the DNA of everything. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, and you know what? In a way, that that could kind of be the one sentence summary of the entire, the thing that I think of as the project of, of not only the Song of Zazen, but the book is relationship with suffering heals. And it's the only thing that does. If you don't love it, nothing changes. If you love it, something changes. <laughs> so that's the oldest one in the book. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing new with everybody. And I was like, oh, love is the thing that works. Other stuff doesn't, but love does. And you're like, yes. <laughs> there it is we've arrived home again yeah oh if i could just love it if i could just somehow say yes to it even for a few breaths just love it just love it it's hurting that's all so such a simple recipe but there is an artistry to the way all the different traditions talk about how that relationship shows up and the nuances for that relationship and you know to break love down into well we're going to call it compassion and we're going to call it truth here we'll call it wisdom here we'll call it justice here well you know all of its different faces all of its different forms but yeah i agree i think the the recipe is always the same yeah well <laughs> a human being we, here yeah these things level. feel abstract until we like sit with them and actually allow them to do their work to allow yeah. the work of compassion to happen in us and to allow wisdom to germinate you know yeah, it's, it's, it comes with with the practice it comes with the it's just it's there. We just have to go and be present with it and be vulnerable. 
<laughs> there we go again. There we go again. We're being we're being compassionate. We're being curious. We're being compassionate. We're being courageous. Oh, they're all the same thing. Holy cat! I know. Well, I mean, that's I mean, that's <laughs> the beauty of it, right? It, it's uh, these are the these are the maybe the universal truth that you know we all throughout time and history is this you know cloud of believers, a cloud of of uh, beloveds comes around to yeah. and we tell the story over and over to one another. It's, uh, it is our, I believe it, it's our collective mystical story, you know, throughout yeah, time. There's our, there's our communion, right? Yeah. There's our communion. It's, it's so beautiful to me. Yeah. Wow. So your book is available. It is. We can buy it. It is. You can buy it. There's a bunch of places out there now that have it. There's a bunch of independent bookstores that carry it. There's the larger places like Barnes and Noble and uh, Amazon. Of course, it's there. And um, yeah, I have found my time spent with that poem to be of huge support to me as a practitioner, but a huge help to me as as a spiritual companion. It's been a real help to me as a spiritual director. So I offer it um, because it might be of help to others. To help with that web building, that communion making that we're talking about, connection to other human beings. Um, but yeah, I hope, you know, my highest aspiration would be that it would be a resource for somebody and, and that it might help illuminate something for somebody. But, um, you know, poems, and I think, because I think of this poem as scripture, and scripture's got kind of quotes around it. I don't know in the Zen tradition what counts as scripture and what doesn't. <laughs> if it seems really good, I think, well, that's scripture. Um, I think scripture is so personal, you know, the way it speaks to all of us, that if if 10 people are reading Corinthians 13, there's 10 different Corinthians 13s there. And so I offer what this poem said to me, what I got from it how i worked with it but um it's certainly not designed to be you know an exegesis or this is the thing that this thing says it's much more of an open door i hope that people can relate um to this scripture and to other scripture in a really personal way let it speak to you you know it's it's what it says it's what it says to matt that's the most alive for matt it's what it said to busho that's most alive for busho so I hope the investigation becomes personal for people, for the reader at some point. I mean, I, I hope my voice is of help, but ultimately it's right. It's our relationship with ourself. And this, if the scripture is a, is a catalyst for that relationship. Oh, wonderful. What a blessing. It's so beautiful. And it, it makes me think of the way you were, the way you were describing the way that this poem became scripture for you, which is you, you wove it into your chants. And you you chanted it and you practiced it every day until it became you described it as like coming out of your pores. It's yeah. Uh, if Lectio Divina were a verb, I would say like you Lectio Divina'd it <laughs> until it became, That is correct. <laughs> and in that process, it became scripture. And I don't mean to be like blasphemous, but I, the way you just described, like when scripture becomes real, when it when it is it is in your in your blood it's in your it's in your pores it's yeah there's like this old testament i think 
like eat the scroll right like yes power it you know oh there's zen right there whoever yeah. said eat the scroll you that's... have you have eaten oh. you have feasted on the scroll you have feasted on this poem and and i think you have you've discovered these these glowing contemplative jewels that we can all like you describe it as a resource and uh yeah it it sounds like a resource times 10 it's uh it's a a beautiful offering to to all of us so thank you for writing oh. it thank you for offering it to our community um yeah you are very very welcome is there anything else you want to you want to share about it or anything? um i don't think anything else is is jumping up to me but i um i i appreciate the kindness of your words and you know i <laughs> i feel the same way I feel the same way about scripture. I appreciate that every tradition and Zen included, right? It has its canon, you know, it has its list of these are the things. And there's a, there's a huge power to that. I, I love the connection to the past, the ancientness of that, of knowing I'm reciting the, the, the Metta Sutra. And this has been recited for 2,500 years to know that my voice is one of the chorus is really beautiful to me. And I also really appreciate that um what you said about something kind of becoming cellular yes. that there's something it's there's almost a physicality in my eyes to what happens to Rumi's the guest house when you've chanted it every day for a year it's beyond memorize now it's just in your blood you, you recognize this thing is coming out of my mouth my teeth my breath this day you know, um, it isn't old anymore. It doesn't belong to anybody else anymore, in a way. It's like, this is actually mine now, right? It, it isn't an artifact. It doesn't feel like it, it's uh, a leftover from an ancient anything. It feels more like, no, it's alive. This isn't literally informing me, it's inside of me. The way the Lord's Prayer is, the way the Nicene Creed is for me, the way the, whatever the thing is that, that we've long ago memorized and allowed to become part of us. Um, the reason I think that's valuable is because I think it's medicine. Um, I'm, I know I'm not alone in working with, with people um, companioning who at some point disclose one of their old stories, one of their old beliefs about themselves, something that's toxic, something that's small something that's born of fear or born of hate, and you realize, oh, this has been informing you way under the surface for decades, maybe, this this horrible idea or this, this untruth, right, about themselves, something, about value or shame or disgrace or something. And to bring that up into the light, to be able to look at it with the eye, you know, the fresh eyes of like a mature soul, seeing it through the eyes of wisdom and going, oh, oh my God, that was informing me this whole time. That wasn't true. Oh, I can see the lie for what it is. The truth is setting me free, right? Yes. That the idea of putting scripture in, say it every day, say it until you memorize it, say it until it's more than memorized. Again, like the Lord's Prayer, like the the thing that you had to recite every dinner, uh, before every dinner, you know, holding hands with your family, Put that kind of stuff in those cells. Put that, I mean, that's so important. It really is almost cellular. 
I appreciate that, you know, Buddhism was an oral tradition and, you know, before anything was ever written down, the only way to memorize it was repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. So we come by our chanting practice from kind of practical, you know, practical reasons, which makes a lot of sense. But what I love about how you and I are talking about this is anything that really moves us deeply, it doesn't matter whether this is Old Testament or New Testament or Hebrew scripture or Rumi or Hakuin or song lyrics or a Mary Oliver poem or Mark Nebo, who cares what it is? This really moves me. The decision to, you know what I'm going to do is after my sitting, after my prayer every morning, I'm going to recite this aloud to myself or I'll sing it. I'll, I'll chant it. I'm going to do this every day for a month um, to open myself up to it in a much deeper way. Yeah, not only do we see more in the scripture itself, but for me, it starts being a relationship with the self. Because those words, they really do kind of stop belonging to Hakuin or Rumi or Moses. They start being, no, this is me now. I can't pretend that I'm following someone else's instruction when when I want to love my neighbor as myself. I said it. They're mine. This is me now. Oh, if I really want to have spiritual integrity, I have to obey what I told myself this morning. Get out there, Busho. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Right? I mean, there's such a self-ownership there that for spiritual aspirants like we all are, I know, um, it becomes so personal not only cellular, but deeply, privately personal. And, oh, then, isn't that lovely? Now we're carrying it with us all the time. (laughs) So even when we (laughs) leave our books behind on the train, the words are still alive in us, right? Indeed. And they become, they're real. Those words are real in you. You have embodied that. And and I believe, like, they give you a a power like like an aura you know like you are a you are a beacon of light in the world because you are radiating those words agreed yeah, yeah that's exactly right that's exactly right isn't that beautiful we're, we're like a bell that's been maybe you know this from seifu and and sometimes in in japanese and chinese buddhism they will um when they're casting the big bell for the temple you know out of iron they the bell is covered in the scripture that like part of the cast is the outside of the bell says the prayer or says the the scripture. So the idea being when you ring the bell, uh, it spreads the scripture, kind of like the prayer flag. You know, when the wind moves through the flag, it spreads the prayer. It's that same idea. Our our whole lives, right? Our whole bodies, our hearts become that bell that's rung all the time. And you're right. We have an opportunity to radiate what the world so, so, so desperately needs. I love that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Being the ringing bell. Well, Bushno, thank you so much. Thank you for your time and your sharing. Absolutely. It is wonderful to get to talk to you, Matt. It's always an honor to serve uh, the SDI community. Uh, if if people have any have anything they want to add to this conversation, ask questions about this, engage with this, I encourage them to do so. I'm I'm easy to find. You're easy to find. <laughs> uh, yes, we fellow, are around. <laughs> uh, we are around. We are easy to find. Yeah. And, uh, and and we both really value uh, we both really value engagement. And we yeah. will we'll also put some links in the podcast notes so we can help people find that book too. Singing and dancing are the voice of the law introduces us to one of the great works of Zen literature, the Song of Zazen. 
Zen teacher Boucholan illuminates Hakuin's enigmatic poem in plain language, unpacking it and applying it to contemporary life. His book offers a wealth of information on the context and content of this 18th century work, clearly evoking its themes of abiding wisdom, meditation, compassionate self-regard, and our own everyday life's potential to express deep spiritual truth. Learn more about this book and find purchase links at monkfishpublishing.com. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.